0: Thank you, worship team in the back and everybody at home. Uh, Hey, it's good to be here this morning. Uh, Like Pastor Jerry said, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Seoul, and uh, I'm excited to get into it this morning. Let's get the Bible open. Here we go. Um, b- before we dive into our conversation on, on the theology of sex, we're in part four. Today we're talking about the subject of singleness, but before we get there, um, a, a quick important matter of administration to bring to you. Uh, I stepped into a new role here at Soul Sanctuary um, in September, and, and a part of that role and that change of job title and job description uh, was uh, a big responsibility that came onto my plate. It was our uh, management of our staff team, and I'll tell you, I am Proud of our staff team. I love our staff team through and through. Uh, They are people, they're pastors, they're directors, they're assistants. They are people who who use their God given gifts and ability to serve this church. And a couple uh, important announcements just to to bring us up to speed on changes on our staff team. So, uh, as of this past Friday, Pastor Shauna Lavender has concluded her r- role as the children's pastor at Soul Sanctuary. Uh, pastor Shauna and her husband Murray may still be around. You might still see them because they're continuing to raise support uh, for their deployment as PAOC missionaries. Uh, we're pumped for Pastor Shauna and for Murray as they take steps of obedience following God's call on their lives into full-time mission. And uh, we believe that the impact that they've made here at Soul Sanctuary is going to long outlive their physical presence here in this community. And so uh, we cheer them on and we look forward to supporting them in the months and in the years to come. Now Jill Rhodes has faithfully served at Soul Sanctuary in various uh, children's ministries capacities over the last few years. And in fall 2019, Jill was hired full-time as the acting children's ministry director uh, here at Seoul. And uh, Jill will continue acting in her role uh, as the uh, children's ministry director while Seoul begins the search uh, for a new full-time, full-time children's ministry pastor. And Jill's heart for the children here at Seoul has been self-evident, and her contribution to our community has been felt throughout. And we're thankful for Jill, uh, for her desire to stay on with us in this transitory period. So we're thankful for Jill, we're thankful for Shauna, we're thankful for all of our staff team here at Seoul, and we truly believe that the best is yet to come. All right, we're into our Theology of Sex series. And if this is your first week tuning in, I want to say welcome I'm decided that you have come. You've come on a good week. You, you, okay, so two things. We're going to get this out of, out of the way here. I'm not just going to look into the camera because it's just too weird for me. So I'm just going to pretend you're here. And I'm going to, I'm going to preach to you like you're here. And I'm not going to stare into, the, into the soul, your soul. Um, and uh, at, at the same time, if I've, I've written this for you to be here. So I'm going to talk to you like you're here. And uh, yeah, we're going to move forward from that note. Sound good? I heard you at home. It does sound good. Okay. Hey, uh, we are in, uh, we're going to be in the book of Matthew together. So get your Bible out, get your iPhone out, whatever. Uh, The book of Matthew chapter 19. And in the Theology of Sex series, we're going to talk about singleness. We're going to talk about what does it mean? What does the Bible say about being single? So we pick it up in Matthew chapter 19 verses 3 to 12 here we go. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and he went into the other region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large, crowd, large crowds followed him there and he healed some of them there. Now some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read? He replied, That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command that a man could give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not always this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone who can accept, not everyone can accept this word. But only those to whom it's been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. In the teaching on divorce in in Matthew chapter 19, we did that in our Matthew series. You can go back on the podcast and you can watch the teaching on divorce in Matthew. It's actually important that you have an understanding of divorce. And I mean, Pastor Jerry, he's been talking through this over the course of the last number of weeks as well um, in our Theology of Sex series. But Jesus here, he he begins a conversation that we're going to jump into on being single. It's an important conversation for us to have because for a long time, churches have treated single people like they have a disease. And I think Manitoba is actually uniquely postured uh, to perpetuate the alienation of single people. Let's be real here. If you come from any sort of traditional conservative family uh, in Manitoba, our Mennonite community, our loving Mennonite community, and you weren't married at family gatherings by 18. Sorry, not like you didn't marry family members at family gatherings. You didn't take a significant other to a family gathering by the age of 18. People looked at you funny. In traditional conservative thought, there's like, hey, get married young. And it's, it's funny, this date on our preaching calendar, it's been on here a long time. I mean, I've been inviting friends to church this morning. And so then I just text them and said, hey, live stream. But I'm like, hey, I'm talking about what it means to be single as, as, a, as a young adult. What, do, what does it mean to be single? We're going to the Bible. We're going to talk about this. And the number one response that I've received from so many people over and over as I invited them to church was like, man, you can't talk about being single. And I'm like, yes, I can. 85% of my life has been single. 60% of my adult life has been single. Moreover, my journey of studying singleness, it actually came out of this past fall in a Christian ethics course for my master's. I was studying Christian sexual ethics and I I needed to do a paper on Christian singleness because I was like, man, this stuff is not talked about. And I don't often feel the need to come on stage and to defend why I'm speaking about a specific topic. But in our society today, we get so worked up when somebody speaks to us about something that that, that is close to our hearts. It's like, you haven't lived my experience. You know, you can't speak to that. But in the Christian faith, that doesn't hold up. In the Christian framework, this understanding doesn't work because in the Christian framework, truth is revealed to us by the scriptures as we approach God in the context of community, yes, where we recognize that God has given us both the ability to reason logically and to experience him in relationship. And so this morning's message has been crafted in community with my single brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we sit down at the table with one another, and when we share our stories, when we empathize with one another, we can grow in our understanding of things that we aren't currently experiencing. And in this journey, I've exposed myself to stories, uh, both, both in person and, and through written literature. Man, I've read so much literature written for mid 30 single females, and I'm not exactly the target demographic, and it's been a bit to work through. But it's enriching because I hear stories that I haven't lived. And as we approach the text, we approach it with our our, our communal experience. We're in this together. I believe that there is only value added when we can sit across the table and talk. When we can study the scripture in humility with each other. And I believe that God is glorified when we collectively choose to pursue him above all else regardless of our experiential differences. In many Christian circles, uh, family has been held in such high esteem that anything that falls out of the context of marriage and kids is looked at as weird. It's looked at as strange. And if you look back on the history of the church, and you track attitudes around singleness, you'll quickly discover how we've arrived at this point in history. For the earliest Christian saints and martyrs, they they often chose to remain single, and in many cases, their decision to remain unmarried cost them their lives under roman persecution there is story after story after story of young christian women who had found this new voice in christ they had found liberation in christ and they decided no i will not be married to that person i want to pursue christ well in a society where women didn't have the right to choose who they were marrying especially women of low birth the punishment was death it was persecution for their faith Cue the Protestant Reformation, which sought to recover the dignity of marriage, especially for those who had devoted themselves to serving Christ in vocational ministry. The peak moment of this in history is 1525. Martin Luther, the great reformer, decides to marry a nun. And there's a lot that goes around in that story, but we look back to it as a critical moment in history... We're looking at at marriage and singleness in a reaction, in a protestant, a protester's reaction to exaggerated Catholic values of celibacy and singleness. We had marriage that was now birthed. It was a a new exciting realm that, that you know, this idea that a priest could get married, a pastor could get married. And, And this response, the pendulum has swung. Then move yourself a couple hundred years later into the 1960s, where the Western church had to grapple with the sexual revolution that took place in the West. And, and in a society where sex, for the first time, was really being discussed in open public discourse, churches had to somehow respond. And, the, and churches, they, they came out by affirming, Yes, yes, everybody's talking about sex. Yes, sex is good. But sex is good within the context of marriage. Therefore, if you want to have sex, get married. And while the theology of sex is good, and if you want to have sex, get married, is good. That's good theology. We've talked about that. We've established that to this point in the series. The implicit suggestion. You know, the church just accepted uncritically the dominant cultural narrative. The implicit suggestion that, you know, you can't live without sex... Therefore, singleness is a purgatory to be endured or a season on your way to an inevitable marriage. That is deeply problematic. And my desire this morning is is to look to the scripture to help us understand where the single adult fits into the kingdom of God. What does Jesus have to say about this? And for the sake of coherent thought this morning... I'd like to compartmentalize a bit. I'd like to make three assertions derived from our passage of Scripture. And then I want to explore them in the, in the light of the rest of Scripture. I want to explore them in, in light of the history of the church and in light of our current cultural moment. Y'all ready for this? This is where you look at your TV and you're like, yeah, I'm ready. Okay, let's make it happen. The first assertion I want to make is that Jesus and the New Testament writers affirm the dignity of singleness. Let's go back to Matthew 19, little refresher here, verses 11 and 12. Jesus replied to his disciples, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it's been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this, should accept this. It's an interesting passage. The first thing that we know is that a, on a, in a conversation about marriage and divorce, Jesus is happy to follow the disciples into a conversation about being single. First, the term eunuch that Jesus uses here, it refers to a castrated male. And now ancient Israel did not practice castration. But many people groups mentioned in the Bible did. The history of castrating males, uh, it it comes specifically uh, from, from castrating somebody so that they can serve in a position of royal authority. And this is thousands and thousands of years old. Jesus establishes that there are three kinds of eunuchs. The first one, he says, is that there were people who were born that way. There are people who are born that way. People born, in the understanding as a eunuch, people born castrated. And and, and scholars have wrestled with what Jesus was saying here. But I I, I think to see it plainly, Jesus is talking about people who were born unique. Perhaps intersex people. I think Jesus here is recognizing a sexual minority. Jesus then says that there's people made that, or they've been made that way by others. And I think this falls into our understanding of what a eunuch is. Somebody who's been castrated at the hands of another person. And then third, the most peculiar one. Jesus talks about people who choose to live like eunuchs. Who forego marriage. Why? For the sake of the kingdom of of heaven. For the sake of serving God. And so when the disciples said, you know, it's better not to marry. Jesus comes back with, yo, it actually might be better not to marry. Here are a couple reasons for that. Not everyone who hears this can accept it, but, you know, those who should can. Jesus' words here carry with them exceptional weight. And they surely stunned his listeners. For a moment, dive back into the grand narrative of the scriptures. Consider that God's covenant with Abraham was that he would give him offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky participation in jewish covenant life it required marriage there was no option and not only that family and children were the visible blessing of god inversely so to not have children to not have family was to be cursed eunuchs themselves were actually debarred from temple worship yet we go to the book of isaiah chapter 56 and we see a unique prophecy which foretells a new way of life outside of the Levitical law. This is what it says, Isaiah 56. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord... To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Think about this for a moment. There is a blessing that comes from faithfulness. Somehow... The eunuchs will have an everlasting name. You know, now they're debarred from temple worship, but somehow they're going to have an inheritance that is far greater than a son or a daughter. Skip ahead a little bit to the book of Acts. Philip, he hears an Ethiopian eunuch reading aloud from the book of Isaiah. But the eunuch's not understanding what he's reading. After Philip uh, approaches him and and shares the gospel with him, the eunuch responds, Look, here is water. Is there anything keeping me from being baptized? And the answer is no, nothing. And he was back. Excuse me. I have to sneeze. Y'all are so happy you're at home right now. (laughs) Everyone in the back's like, We're out. (laughs) Get away. Excuse me. Excuse me. That's the proper response to that. Think about this for a minute. Okay, so we're in the book of Acts, and Philip, he overhears the Ethiopian eunuch reading aloud from what book? The book of Isaiah. And as he's reading aloud from the book of Isaiah, Philip comes up to him and is like, hey, hey, do you understand what you're reading? He's like, No, how, I can't understand it unless somebody explains it to me. And so Philip explains it to him, shares the gospel. They come along water. The, the, the Ethiopian eunuch says, There's water here. What's keeping me from being baptized? And Philip's like, Nothing. And he was baptized. And sometimes I wonder, what passage in the book of Isaiah was the eunuch reading? And while that's just conjecture on my part, we do see these stories lining up. That in Christ, and through what Christ had done on the cross, the eunuchs are now brought into, or are now covered in, Christ's promises to his people. And uh, the prophecy from Isaiah 56 has come to pass. Jesus, he affirms the dignity of marriage. And we see that at the beginning of Matthew 19 when he's talking about divorce. He's like, what God has joined together, let nobody separate. This is important. But shortly thereafter, he affirms the dignity of the single state. And where the mandate was once to produce physical children, the mandate today of a Christian is to produce spiritual children. And this is a work in which both married and single people can participate in. I think Christianity, it stands unique in that its founder being Jesus and perhaps its greatest theologian being Paul, they were single. And and while while talking through the book of Matthew, when we talked through it over the course of the last year, as we taught through Matthew, we, we came to wrestle with this idea of be, Jesus being fully divine and fully human. And Jesus being fully human means that he understood what it meant to live as an adult with sexual longings, with deep-seated desires for companionship. Yet for Jesus, fulfillment, purpose, and joy did not come from marriage. For the Apostle Paul, fulfillment, purpose, and joy did not come from marriage. I think Pastor Jerry established last week that, that if you're going into marriage, and you have the, if marriage is an idol, at some point it's going to crumble for you. That it can't withstand the weight of your expectation. And Christianity from the outset, it establishes the single state as an option for a fulfilling life. Jesus and the New Testament writers, they affirm the dignity of singleness. The second assertion that I want to make is that Christians are an eschatological people. Stay with me here, all right? Uh, Why does Jesus say in Matthew 19 that it would be good for some people to undertake this lifestyle? This is the Theology of Sex series, so let's learn some theological terminology. All right. Get your dictionary out. Write this down. Eschatology has to do with the last things, the things at the end of the age, the final destiny of the soul. Eschatology. Say it with me. Ah, okay. Your kids playing video games upstairs. Like, what are you doing, mom? Eschatology. Eschatology is to do with the last things. And the primary concern for the Christian is not life on this earth, but it's life eternally with Christ. Christians live in this life with their eyes firmly fixed on the next life. It's not that Christians don't care about what's happening in this world or what's happening uh, around them. Far from it. In fact, faithful Christian witness necessitates that we live here in the present moment with our hearts and our hands ready to help the least of these. William Penn. True godliness does not turn men out of the world. But it enables them to live better in it. And it excites their endeavors to mend it. That's what true godliness is. I mean, a Christian who says, you know, I don't care about uh, coronavirus because if I die, I know where I'm going. They're missing the main point of being a Christian. They're missing the responsibility that they have to bring hope to a hopeless world, to bring healing to a hurting world, to bring the love of Christ to a world in crisis. So even though Christians are to be oriented with their gaze fixed firmly on the next life, they're to be present in this moment now, following Jesus where he has situated them. We go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is addressing a sexually immoral Corinthian church, probably much like us. Verse 32, he says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he could please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about, about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and in spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband, I'm saying this to you for your own good, not to restrict you, but you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. The Apostle Paul, he argues that singleness is his preferred marital status and that celibate singleness is beneficial for the kingdom of heaven. You know, the unmarried man, he can concentrate on the things of the Lord, but the married man has worldly concerns. You know, he's worried that, that it rains too much and there's water in his basement. And he's got to get that water out because his kid lives down there. And he can't let his kid live in a swamp. You know, he's got to shovel the driveway. The unmarried man has, has worldly concerns. In the same respect, or, or the, the married man has worldly concerns. And, and the married woman, she's got worldly concerns too. Be it The same or different from the man, regardless, what they have in common is that they're worried for each other. In fact, you can't be married without worry without without being concerned for your spouse. And Paul says he he longs to see both men and women given over to the service of the Lord. He wants to see them serve God with zero distractions. And Paul explicitly states this as the reason for singleness. Yet he does not elevate singleness above marriage. Just before this in 1 Corinthians 7, he says to them this. He says, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. He's like, guys, stop sleeping with everyone. Just you to your wife and you to your husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, And likewise, the wife to her husband. And the wife does not have authority over her own body, but she yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but he yields it to his wife. There's a mutual submission that Paul's talking about. Then he says, don't deprive each other. Except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time. So that you might devote each other or or devote yourselves to prayer. But then come back so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He's looking at, at the church and he's like, you don't have self-control. Therefore, be married and therefore have sex with, with just your spouse. And, you know, submit to each other here. Be loving and grace-filled with one another when it comes to your sexual relationship. Don't deprive one another unless you're going to go pray and fast, you know, do that. But only do it for a short time. So that you don't steep yourselves in sexual immorality again. And like Jesus in Matthew 19. Paul affirms both the married and the single state. And he emphasizes the importance of being content in whatever state you find yourself. For Jesus and for Paul, sexual expression belonged in the context of marriage. And there's an encouragement for some Christians to choose celibacy. And that encouragement was not a demeaning of their body as if your body is bad and, and you're rejecting it out of an asceticism, but it's an eschatologically charged symbol. Remember that word? It's an eschatologically charged symbol of the urgency in which Christians should live. What is your priority in this life? What is the focus of a Christian? What is the mission of a Christian? A theology of singleness must carry with it an eschatological orientation. You know, a a focused on the end direction. As a true reflection of these scriptures which speak to it. And simply put, the primary purpose of singleness is to be concerned with the coming kingdom of God. Embodying an unfettered devotion to the cause of Christ. That's the purpose of being single, as revealed to us in the scripture. The call of all Christians, married, singled, the call of all Christians is go and make disciples. And the Christian mission is one of conceiving and delivering spiritual children, not just physical offspring. And so it doesn't matter if you're married, it doesn't matter if you're single. But single people, we, we, we learn Can participate in God's creative work of reconciling all things to Himself. In our churches, in our workplaces, in our communities, we co labor with Christ for the redemption of the world, and single people have an advantage here. They have less distractions, they don't have to worry about their spouse's concerns. The single life must be reimagined. Assertion number 3. The single life must be reimagined. Statistics Canada it lists that this, that a single person household is the dominant household arrangement in our nation. That single person households are the number 1 household arrangement in our nation. So whether you're young and single, whether you're divorced, Uh, Or maybe you've been widowed. Single people make up a large portion of our society. Now, most churches are built around the family model. I mean, look at your, your stream viewer right now. If you scroll up, there's a section for kids and youth, but there isn't a section for singles. And churches are most comfortable ministering to families. Churches have developed an infrastructure to support families and to support children and to support couples. Yet in a time when demographics are changing, the church too must change. We, the church, we must affirm the dignity of singleness in light of a Christian sexual ethic. And that necessitates a renewed promotion of, dare I say it, celibacy, not as merely a temporary state to be endured or lamented, not as, uh, not as a repressive or oppressive mandate, but rather as a state in which Christians may be imitators of the life of Christ, where they can be signs of the coming kingdom where they can be witnesses to the gracious calling of God for themselves and for their married friends and neighbors. When addressing this subject, I'd be a fool to ignore the fact that many watching right now are single and they don't want to be. Popular culture, it depicts singleness as an empowered choice. But we must remember that unrequited love or the inability to find a suitable partner or conflicts between sexual longings and theological convictions are all reasons why people are single. That they're not single because they've made a choice to empower themselves and they feel really good about this choice, but actually that their singleness hurts. And I can't stand up here and give you all Or give you a cure all solution for your pain. I can't. But I can walk with you and I can point you to Jesus every step of the way. First, if you're involuntarily single, I want to remind you that that Christians, married and single, so this isn't just on you, it's married and single, must give up their rights in service of God. It's a high call that I don't speak too flippantly. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, we are not our own. And and therefore, our discipleship, it involves us giving ourselves freely to the service of God. Not just our time, not just our treasure, not just our talents, but our sexuality as well. And I think that, that this message today should spark us onward into having greater conversations. About sexuality in the context of singleness. I think conversations that happen around a table. Or honestly, maybe conversations that happen online in the Instagram direct messages. Later this afternoon. Second. It's interesting that Jesus' discussion on singleness in Matthew 19. Falls right in the middle of three sermons on suffering. A commentator uh, on this passage notes that life in this age has not been arranged for our comfort. And each one of us must follow Jesus with at least one particular cross of suffering discipleship. And if a person's cross is the cross of not being able to be married and in this sense being eunuched, the disciple can seek the grace not o- or, or, or the grace to accept this painful assignment. In brave endurance, knowing that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glories of the age to come. The early church fathers, they framed celibate singleness not as a cross to bear, however, but an opportunity to embrace. The inability to find a suitable partner was seen as an opportunity to embrace Christ in espousal role. Now hear me out. I'm not talking about like patronizing platitudes, like you just marry Jesus till you're 22 or 18. If you're a Mennonite and one day a man will come along. It's not that for the earliest Christians, Christ was viewed as a low risk, high reward spouse who would always do what was best for the beloved. And perhaps a renewal in our churches. uh, a, A new understanding of celibacy among Christians is needed. And this begins by seeing singleness and seeing celibacy. Not as oppression, but as freedom. As freedom to serve. As freedom from distractions. As freedom to give. This is a a freedom which allows a celibate single to, to participate in intentional, enriching, life giving relationships within the church. I'll be quite frank this does not make sense outside of a Christian worldview. It doesn't. In a society where sex is everything, this doesn't make sense. But when we go to the Bible and we look with a renewed vision and we put on a biblical worldview, and for some of you, you're sitting there right now and this is tough to swallow. And I would challenge you, let's go to the scriptures around the table together. Let's continue the conversation. To my married brothers and sisters, what does it look like To champion the singles in our community? What does it look like to celebrate them in their successes and to mourn in their losses? They won't won't have a baby shower, but what can we celebrate with them? What party can we throw To, to, to my married brothers and sisters? What does it look like to stop trying to to set our single friends up with somebody if they haven't given you the permission to do that in their life? To my married brothers and sisters, can we stop glorifying sex as the be-all and the end-all of human existence? And to my single brothers and sisters, you're not weird. You're not weird. Uh, According to the scripture, and and Paul makes this clear for us, the married folk are the weak ones. And you're the strong ones. You're the ones with self-control. And so what would it look like for you to see yourself as Jesus sees you? Ask yourself this. What are the primary qualifiers that you put on yourself and that that, that are fixed to your identity? Is it your marital state? You know, uh, my name is whatever, and I'm 25 and single. And I'm 30 and single. And I'm 45 and single. Is that your primary qualifier? Maybe it's your vocation. Maybe it's not your marital status. Maybe it's your vocation. I'm George the engineer. I don't know. Maybe it's your sexual orientation. Maybe that's your primary qualifier. That that, that puts the direction of your identity. But but what does it look like if for a moment to step away from from those qualifiers... And before you put anything in front of your name, you come to recognize and to see yourself and to begin the process of accepting yourself the way that Jesus sees you. What does it look like for you to walk in confidence that you are a son and a daughter and or a daughter of the Most High? Well, what does it look like for you to walk in confidence that you are a royal heir? What does it look like for you before anything else to recognize that you are a participant in the redemption of the world? What does that look like? Fulfillment in this life will come from Christ and from no one else. And nothing can bring you lasting joy. And so you must ask yourself, can I rest content in Christ? Can I I lean on Christ for lasting fulfillment in my life? No marriage, no person that you're pursuing, no idol that you put in the place of Christ will support the weight of your expectation. Can you rest content in Christ? And I think what, what's perhaps most important coming out of that is can we continue a conversation around sex and sexuality? Can we talk openly with one another around the table? Or in the DMs, you know, about our, our, about our sexual longing, about pornography use, about hookup culture, about masturbation. Can we talk openly about how, how do we glorify God through our sexuality? I mean, when, when Lauren and I were working with high school students here at Seoul for years and years and years and years, and we decided that we, w- we would always, when asked, talk openly about sexuality with our kids. And you know, we we would talk on on Friday nights about sexuality and we would have those conversations. And I think that's even why we're doing this series here. Yeah, it can be awkward. Yeah, it can be weird. But how are we going to learn from one another? If we keep things in the dark. I mean, if, if, we, if we believe we're a church and we're like, yeah, you know, we, we got to study the scriptures together in life groups. But you show up to life group and, and you know, you, you never have a meaningful interaction with somebody. And then you try another life group the next semester and, and nobody really cares about talking about the difficult things in life. I mean, to be the church, we have to have conversations that make us uncomfortable. To be the church, we have to be honest with One another. In my study on singleness, perhaps the most profound challenge that I heard issued towards singles was this, wherever you find yourself, maybe you're 50 and divorced, 25 and widowed, maybe you're 40 and and single, wherever you find yourself, can you get a vision for your singleness? And will you, choose to, uh, will you choose to either be a, a victim of circumstance or will you see your singleness with a vision of possibility? A victim of circumstance or a vision of possibility? And, and what, what one will you walk in? Think singles, you need to recognize that Jesus longs for you. You need to recognize that the church, that this church needs your gifts. That you are members of the body. That God has given you spiritual giftings which serve to build up his church. And that this world, it needs you to help heal its brokenness. And I believe that singles can offer something unique to our church. They can offer us a recovery of spiritual friendship. Strong Long-lasting relationships that are neither contingent on familial bonds nor sexual connection. And as we walk this road together, both married and single people, I truly believe that the scripture points us to be an eschatological people who live in this present moment with such a clear vision of our certain future that we are free from the anxieties and the pressures of this age. That we labor together for the sake of building God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And this is the call on all of us as followers of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come together. I mean, the the few of us here physically and, and all of us united across the globe digitally. And in the craziness of our world and of this particular season, Lord, we just ask for your peace to reign supreme. God, renew in us all, married and single, an awareness that we live in this present moment with our hearts and our hands ministering to the people around us, but with our gaze firmly fixed on the face of Christ. God, it's by your power that we can do anything. And so would your Holy Spirit inspire us to good works? Lord, my prayer is for the suffering single whose heart is hurting and whose heart has hurt for a long time by the the power of your Spirit. Would you bring people alongside of them to minister to them? Lord, would you speak to them now through your word, through a message like this? And God, would you meet them? And would you bring them comfort? Lord, we believe that our call is, is to follow you above everything else. And so we do so. We put our trust in you and we pursue you. And we thank you and we love you. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, that we pray together. Amen. In times of old, the one giving a blessing would extend hands. And those receiving a blessing would extend hands as well. So, stand up off your couch for a minute. Okay, stand with me. Now your kid's like, what the heck is going on? And would you extend hands? Nothing magical, nothing weird. Simply a blessing rooted in scripture. Soul sanctuary, wherever you find yourself on this globe today. Regardless of the anxieties of this age, may you leave with a confidence that the Lord your God goes ahead of you. Regardless of your marital status, may you go and continue the work of raising spiritual children. Regardless of your cross to bear, may you go and participate in God's creative work of reconciling all things to himself. And regardless of what your future holds on this earth, may you go with an eschatological orientation, with your hope firmly fixed on Christ, the champion of our faith. Be blessed, go in peace, and we'll see you next week.